to the great work radio program. The great work radio and blog are features of Jesse Ward's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. Hello and welcome to the Great Work Radio Program. I'm Jesse Waugh. I recently attended a graduate conference at the University of Cambridge in England, which was entitled Charming Intentions, Occultism, Magic, and the History of Art. It was organized by Daniel Zamani, who is a PhD candidate at Trinity College, Cambridge, and Dr. Alexander Marr. The two-day conference was set up to, quote, investigate the intersections between visual culture and the occult tradition, ranging from the material culture of primitive animism through medieval and renaissance depictions of witchcraft and demonology to contemporary fascination with the supernatural in popular culture. It is a rare thing for the subject, which could be colloquially referred to as occult symbology, to be the focus of a scholarly conference at a top university. And as such, I was more than enthusiastic to attend. This and several following episodes of the great work feature rudimentary recordings of a number of the lectures. Please bear in mind that the quality of the audio is lacking and also that the speakers refer to various images, icons, and objects which are not presented along with the audio. Most works mentioned should be accessible using an image search. Liliana Leopardi is a professor at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, New York. She gave an extraordinarily engaging speech on the subject of Renaissance magic, precious and semi-precious stones, the fetish as a path to psychological integrity, in which she revealed and illustrated very arcane stories of Renaissance-era magic having to do with the power of jewels. Her oratory ability and prowess was refreshing and even thrilling. Um, welcome back, everyone. Um, I hope you enjoyed the conference so far. I think the first papers have shown us what an immense diversity um, and richness the subject matter is, really. And um, I love that we had even sting in it and um, some modern takes on Tantra. And I hope you refreshed uh, the last panel tonight um, on uh, early modern Europe. The panel is going to be convened by Professor Jean-Michel Massin, who is currently head of the department. And it's absolutely fantastic that he's taken his time um, during this busy period of the year to come to the conference and support it. Um, so please join me in welcoming Jean-Michel Massin. Thank you. I would like to welcome you all, in fact, and I would like to... Um, and uh, and uh, unfortunately, as you know, we have admissions, we have all kinds of things at the same time. But, you know, I came already to enough sessions to see with, that with so much magic and so much Uncle <coughs> you will have the most wonderful, wonderful uh, ending and writing of your PhD in due time. So everything is under nice control in, uh, with a conference like this. I would like, in fact, to introduce the first uh, speaker today, Liliana Leopardi, sorry, who did her PhD at uh, New York University at the Institute of Fine Arts and we will speak today, who is now at Hobart and William Smith College in London, in New York, sorry. <laughs> 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 who will speak today on Renaissance magic, precious stones, the fetish as a path to psychological integrity. Thank you. 
thank you so much for this lovely introduction. And I do wish it was London, you know. <laughs> Um, thank you so much also to Dan and Josephine for organizing this wonderful conference and for having me here today. Now, my current research is born out of curiosity with regards to the possible um, symbolism of gems and talisman in Renaissance portraits, such as, for example, in Brunzina's Allegory of Love, today at the National Gallery London, of which you see a detail here. And I'd like to point out in particular the crown of the Venus, where you see a little figurine of a Venus riding an emerald in a rather sensual pose. Um, or, for example, in Lorenzo Lotto's Venus and Cupid at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or in the medal of Isabella Sforza, or in a detail that I'm showing you to the right of a Lombard Madonna and Child, where you see the crucifix alongside a wolf tooth, uh, used as a talisman. Um, I thus arrived to an Italian manual of lithotherapy of the 16th century, Camillo Leonardi's Speculum Lapidum, a text that includes the description of circa 250 precious and semi-precious stones, along with their occult virtues, as well as the description of circa 90 engraved <coughs> images of erotic, astrological, and mythological nature. My aim today is to discuss those insights this text offers on the role that magic may be considered to play in the construction of the self and the masculine psyche, in particular in the 16th century. While I here use or will use a negative fetish model as the principal approach to the material, I'm also interested in exploring <coughs> a positive model of analysis according to which 16th century masculinity stepped into the realm of magic and mythology, not out of fear or anxiety, but out of entitlement. Thus, for example, I also believe that it would be interesting to pursue a Lacanian model of analysis um, as it, its emphasis on the scopic order and its possible ambiguities promises to yield the interesting results. A gem, in fact, may be considered intrinsically ambiguous, for it both occludes and mirrors, as already pointed out by Marsha Poynton in her recent book, Brilliant Effects, A Cultural History of Gemstones and Jewelry. But let us return now to our author, Camillo Leonardi. He was a physician and an astrologer on whom very little is known. He was born in Pesaro in the second half of the 15th century and died sometime after 1532. He studied in Padua, one of the oldest schools of medicine, and was present at the court of Costanzo Sforza and his son Giovanni. The manual he published, which we see here today, the Speculum Lapidum, was dedicated to Cesare Borgia, Duke of Valentinois, the son of Pope Alexander VI, a newly minted lord of Pesaro, suggesting that Leonardo was living in that city at the time of publication. The Speculum Lapidum was translated into Italian by Ludovico Dolce, um, and by, with the title Libri 3 di Messer Ludovico Dolce, nei quali si tratta delle diverse sorti delle gemme che produce la natura e delle qualità, grandezza, bellezza e virtù loro published in 1565. Both the original Latin and its translation enjoyed great fortune, though it was only partially translated in English 
um, in the late 1750s under the title of the Mirror of Stones. The translation, the 1750 translation, was divested of any reference to magic or of any erotic magic for that uh, uh, matter. The whole third section of the book was basically left out. So I've just finished the translation of the book last year and I'm now engaged in the editorial work and commentary of this book, which is what the material that I'm presenting today is part of a book chapter. Leonardi's text may be considered not only the culmination of a long medieval tradition whose roots may be traced to antiquity, but the most accomplished manual to have been published on the subject of the Vis Naturalis of Stone. Leonardi's sources uh, included a wide range of classical and medieval sources. To just name a few, Pliny's Naturalis Historias, the Majorans, the Virtutibus Lapidem, the Lithica, ascribed to a disciple of Hermes Trismegistus by the pseudonym of Orpheus. The etymologia again missed by the 7th century Archbishop Isidore of Seville, the 11th century Picatrix, which has been mentioned earlier, translated from the Arab into Spanish and Latin under the aegis of Alphonse X and the Latin poem De Lapidibus Pretiosis by the Bishop of Rennes, Marbode, and Mar um, Albertus Magnus Libri Secretorum and Libri Mineralium. So as you can see, Leonardo is looking at a long tradition from the Middle Ages onward. The genre of magical lithotherapy fell in the category of natural magic, as outlined, of course, by Thomas Aquinas, and incorporated classical and biblical tradition along with the Gnostic idea according to which gems were natural talismans which preserved the energy of planets and were often incised with angels' names. The vis naturalis of stones further found its justification in the most hallowed of sources, the Bible. Iron was charged with a gem-encrusted pectoral, of which you see here a representation, a rationale, worn as part of the ceremonial priestly garb, Exodus 28:17-20. He's also asked to engrave the names of the sons of Israel on two stones, six on one and six on the other, Exodus 28:9-11. In Apocalypse 21:18-21, Jerusalem's walls and the city's foundations are set to rest on precious gems, as shown in folio 222, uh, which shows the heavenly Jerusalem in the Morgan Abeatis, and we've heard about this manuscript earlier. While the medieval lapidaries have been carefully studied, the same has not happened for Renaissance material. Wishing to see the Renaissance as a rational endeavor, neatly packaged in geometric grid of an Albertian perspective, art historian often dismiss the seriousness with which Renaissance thinkers like Poliziano, Pico della Mirandola, and Ficino engaged in magic. They conceived the occult properties of such objects today considered mere material culture as an integral component of Neoplatonic philosophy. Um, and here it's going by itself, I'm not sure why. It, uh, the images have sort of like jumped on. Uh, so sorry, I'll bring you back. Um, just as in Ficino, so in Leonardi's text, a gem's virtue stemmed from the correspondence between microcosm 
and so microcosm and macrocosm, whereby each astral body has analogical equivalent on Earth. While Leonardi's text is not illustrated, he often makes clear that such objects wear rings and pays attention to the type of setting that the ring was to have. Rings similar to those described by him may be found, so the text that we find in Leonardo, the um, images that are described may be found illustrated in Agostino Leonardi's Gemmaet Sculpture Antique of 1685. And here I'm showing you some of the images. And if you're familiar with Gnostic imagery, then you know that, for example, here we have a representation of an abraxas. And uh, this also a phallic abraxas. And this kind of rings, the fact that these stones, these stones that were supposed to have thaumaturgical powers, were preferably set in rings, is clearly also imaged in illustration of the 15th century health manual, the Hortus Sanitatis, which you see here a copy of, in which a number of entries are accompanied by the image of a man selling rings. And here you see this very clearly. So the Hortus Sanitatis has a lithotherapy manual. It lists diamonds, rubies, etc., etc. And many of these entries are illustrated with a variety of images whereby a man is shown selling rings. In this particular case, for example, the images that are in Curious, uh, which was believed to uh, keep away bees. And so you see the figure of a man reclining on the ground as bees cannot uh, sting him because, of course, the power of the ring protects him from the possibility of puncture. Um, the possibility also of these stones being used simply is clearly imaged in the same manual as you see a stone being placed right near the eye. In this case, emeralds and sapphires were believed to have properties that were curative for the eyes. Now, uh, um, um, uh, in, now, rings with images similar to those we've just seen also in Agostino Leonardo's text are properly illustrated in a later text of the 17th century by Abraham von Gorles, the Dactyliotheca Seo Annulorum Sigillarium. And here, interestingly, now the same image, for example, the Abrax that we've just seen before, uh, shows up clearly as a ring. So what's interesting here, it deserves to further study, to be further studied, how these images are represented. Uh, in the earlier image, the ring is not made clear. Now that's made clear in this series of images that we see instead here. And it shows you also clearly the uh, material that the stone was set in, which probably would be important if these images uh, were meant to function from an alchemical point of view as well. Now, there, should there still be any doubt as to the fact that these images were believed to be magic, the 18th century Atlante Farnesiano by Antonio Francesco Gori, which we see the uh, frontispiece of in a 1750 edition, makes it clear by labeling the image as Gemma Magica. And so whereas that magical aspect was not outlined earlier in earlier manuals, it is now clearly shown in these images. 
Unfortunately, many of these gems are now known only through prints or plaquette or calcin ceralacca, which is what you're seeing here. This is a drawer from the Museo degli Argenti in Florence, where we have just the wax impression or the cast impression. Um, most of their mountings were smelted and their stone reset. Yet, the value of such gems, Leonardi stated, uh, was to be considered superior to gold and silver. Because unlike gold and precious metal, stones could not be liquefied. Their power, therefore, was seen as unchanging, permanent. And you can clearly tell that some of the images being erotic probably disappeared you know, across the centuries the material was uh, deemed inappropriate. Indeed, contravening to the dictates of natural magic, Leonardo dared even state that the power came from the engraved image. And this is uh, my translation from the text, I quote, rather it is to be believed that the stones receive their virtues from the images carved as well from the celestial planets, close quote. Admittedly, the author then proceeded to contradict the assertion more than once. He subdivided the gems in three categories, defined by the nature of the image production. Images on stones could be naturally produced, as for example in, in this image here. Or they could be produced through the superimposition of one stone over the other, either naturally or by art, that is by human intervention, as in the case of cameos. So cameos are classified as the second type of uh, image which can be natural or artificial. The third, instead, is images that could be wholly produced by the human hand. It is in this case he asserts that the power and virtue of the stone was not given by the stone alone, but rather by the image that was carved upon them. Yet, if, one of the, uh, if on the one hand he states that the images in, were imbued, or the images imbued the stone with specific powers, on the other hand he also stated that a man could not become what he was not, so the engraved stone could only give power to the extent that a man was meant to achieve potential, so is your limiting magic, thus preserving the Catholic notion of free will. Interestingly, in the same passage, he also asserts en passant that the stones have no effects on the hands of a vile or undeserving woman. It is possible then to suggest that some engraved stones were not meant for female use. The sentence is notable as it seems to further suggest that magical treaties were meant for men and the objects were meant to be used and handled successfully by men alone, as discussed before in the case of a number of medieval manuals, for example. The question that needs to be addressed at this point is what kind of images does Leonardo describe being carved on these stones? What was their function? Now, some of the images as seen before were latently erotic, some less so. So <coughs> let me give you some, some exa uh, examples. Of course, I don't have the images since the text is not illustrated. So the image of a nude woman standing with her hair down towards the small of her back and a seated man gazing upon her, carved on cornelian, gave men the power to impose his will and to make anyone obey him and to gain the love of all. Its power was magnified by having the stone set in a ring with amber and turbant raisin underneath it. So here we have smell and touch also coming into place. 
Um, so an detail that suggests that jewels without open backing could also have magical powers. Since in some of the literatures you will find that only jewels with open backing had the magical powers since they could transfer by contact that magical power, right? Now, similarly, the image of a nude woman with her hair down to her breast in front of a man who showed the signs of love, which seems to be an euphemism for an erection, gave the wearer the power to make everyone obey. And if he touched a woman, she would do his every wish. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, less clearly erotic in function, other, example, give, uh, other examples give the wearer the power over everyone around him or the power of help. The image of a nude man standing on his feet with a young woman on his right, her hair bound and tied around her head, with the man holding her by the right hand, while the left is placed on the chest, and he gazes on her face while she looks to the ground, carved on any stone, and set in an iron ring with the tongue of a hen sparrow, with some myrrh and alum mixed with a bit of blood from the wearer, it would result in the invincibility of the wearer, and no one would be able to resist him. Very clearly here, we have examples of um, ceremonial magic, which really contravene the natural magic, which is the category in which the book is supposedly uh, setting, you know, could be setting. Now, again, for example, if the image of a man holding flowers in the hand is carved on cornelian and made into a ring on a day governed by Venus or the moon, here astrological magics, and he, uh, all he touches will obey him. The figure of a nude, turgid man, accompanied by the figure of a well-dressed man holding a cup in one hand and a blade of grass, if carved on gagatis and worn for three days, it chased all fevers away. Now here is the phallic power, gave life and took the threat to life away. In all cases, the physical possession of the image gave power to the wearer by sympathetic magic. For example, this is actually a small jam, uh, shows a lion, a star, and a moon. It's uh, a Gnostic jam, a magic jam that is at the Bisley Archives in um, Oxford. It's clearly one of these life-giving gems, and it's particularly the sun, being also the, the sun or the lion being uh, associated with each other for their life-giving power. Um, it is easily argued that the objects are here used as fetishes. And here notice that I'm using the word fetish, not talisman. And I'm going to explain the difference or the, try, the kind of difference that I'm trying to make between fetish and talisman based on a psychoanalytic approach. Now, uh, the fetish has been used to protect and lay anxiety and give power. They are used to control the other, which in most examples is conceptualized as a woman. Possession of the represented female body gave the ring wearer power over the actual physical body and functioned as a social signifier of importance. Now, according to the etymological dictionary, the word fetish derives from the Portuguese fetiche, a word derived from the Latin, facticius, facere, to do, to make, as in made by art or by artificial means. It is therefore important that engraved gems be made by the hand of man to be classified as fetish. Their origins contributed to their magical power over the other, represented by the female nude body. 
the veal femina, the, the unworthy woman, the vile woman, over whom power may be had, is denied access to power. The rings then act as a fetish used to bridge between the self, the unmediated experience, and the other. In other words, the fetish acts as a transitional object that mediates the relationship of the individual to the external world. Within this approach, it's important then to distinguish between fetish and talisman. According to psychoanalysts um, Kivik and Shavering, an image function as a fetish when it results from unconscious identification of the individual with the image. Magical thought processes dominate this relationship and the implication of the image are not fully acknowledged. A talisman instead is produced by a conscious set of processes. Uh, it is clear then that in our case, some of the gems are meant to address the unconscious erotic power of the female body that provokes anxiety. Some are more generally bequeathing power on its owner. The fetish makes the anxiety of the unknowable knowable. Moving beyond sexual anxiety may be also argued that these engraved gem in images address the anxiety about social power. The female nudes, as we said before, comes to stand for all categories of other. In Levi-Strauss' elementary structure of kinship, exchange of women reinforces kinship. Having power over women means to have the power to reinforce important exchanges between men. The extension of Levi-Strauss' uh, observation on the exchange of actual bodies to represented bodies is here mediated through Lacan, who famously noted that in such exchanges, la femme n'existe pas, she does not exist. It is clear to us that the anxiety about power that such text reveals manifestly admit that actually long exists power. In such exchanges, men do not exist as independent individualities. Rather, it may be argued masculinity is constructed by gaining power over the other, which if on the one hand is an act of identity affirmation, on the other reveals the anxiety of identity of the controlling agent. Remarkably, as uh, Catherine Richardson, in her study, as my whole trust is in him, jewelry and the quality of early modern relationship has shown, a survey of English 16th century worlds shows distinct patterns of bequeathing rings between men and women. Women bequeathed rings to distant relatives, uh, while men bequeathed them to their close relatives. In 22% of cases, men bequeathed rings to their sons. The exchange of rings came to signify a solidification of the bond between father and son, as well as a kin relationship. In 18% of the cases, the rings were passed on to other male relatives. The passing of the jewel, then, was a vital signifier of social masculine status and a marker of external identity that could be literally seen passing from the hand of the father to that of the son. Across Europe, a number of dukes and princes were avid collectors of the gems, the Medici first of all, right? Which proclaimed an identity as well as bestowing an identity on its wearer by virtue of its occult powers. It is a masculinity constructed as a magic performance to be worn on the hand, conceived as an act of power over the other, and therefore as an act of identity affirmation. In the 18th century, the artist Jean Bruquet, in speaking of gems, seems to address just this idea, 
when he states that, I quote, the brilliance and value of jewels proclaim us from afar, they extend as it were, the limits of our existence, close quote. For Marsha Poynton jewel, uh, in, the, in this case when I'm analyzing the jewel, this means that the jewels acts as a visual suture. She states, I open quotes, the jewel interpolates the viewer. More than a device for attracting the viewer's attention, it creates a point of entry into the image while simultaneously through the physical characteristics of refraction as represented denying entry, returning the viewer to him or herself only for the whole process of attraction repulsion to begin again. I, on the other hand, being interested in magic, would like to humbly point out that a future avenue of inquiry needs to question the manner in which the jewel extends the limits of the represented image and the limits of the self, and to help further delineate the role that magic and the occult virtues had in extending the limits of personhood and self in a world where all was interlinked and perfused by the same vis naturalis. Thank you. Thank you very much for your, uh, for your talk. I would like to, to start on the treatise itself, because if you look at this treatise, it's very, very different from the 18th century treatises, which are really... Yes. Uh, which really shows an enormous amount of uh, theology right. and so on. They know what the Roman uh, yes. erotic yes. terms, for yes. example, are about. What I thought about is that, in fact, the way in which uh, Leonardi uh, looks at the imagery is very much parallel to the books on dreams, which is oh, a yes. classical tradition, yes. a medieval yes. renaissance, where yeah. if you see a man next to yes. this means this and that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. What's interesting is that in the particular case of Leonardi, you, we can also tie him, of course, uh, to the uh, Herman, uh, um, uh, interest in Hermes Trismegistus, whose books had been translated, of course, in yeah. the 15th century and were deeply popularized by Ficino. So we can actually have that closer, if you will, relationship with magic through Hermes Trismegistus in the 15th oh, century. I fully agree on that. Yeah. And Picatrix and so on this tradition, but I still think that the way yes, no, they no, are, yes. the imagery is analyzed is in yes. fact something which you're absolutely right. only parallel to the I can think about. Yeah. Books and yes, no, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. But I'm sure a lot of people have. Well, Harapala knew us, of course, and the beginning yes. of the interest yes. in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Yes. I think these gems always relate to mm -hmm. some kind of Egyptology as well, yeah. which is, of course, black land, the land of magic, yeah. you know, where everything comes from anyway. And I wonder also about this would sort of be relating them back to those sorts of powers. Yeah. Yeah, of course it's the land that alchemy also comes from, it, so it's it, just, yeah. just sort of the archetypal, yeah. magical land. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting is that the text, it's sort of a summa, right? So it sort of takes the tradition of both the, just the simple lithotherapy, where you have the gem that is described in terms of its physical properties, let's say the ruby, the, 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 the sapphire, the diamond, etc. And then it discusses the occult properties. And that's pretty much two sections of the book. The third section starts with astrological magic. So it's really the sort of like the lion, the star, and the moon. And so this gem would have to be carved in the time when Leo traverses, of course, moon, etc., etc. 
and then it gives us a whole section on images. And you, you start, you're, you're kind of playing a puzzle games of origins. What I wondered, which is the part of research that I've not gotten into yet, is, you know, uh, many of the images that he's describing, and some of which we find then in those manual of the 17th century, which are really more like a Wunderkammer manuals, right? Uh, is how much of those would be seen also connected to alchemy, although he does not specifically discuss it. Well, alchemy. certainly that baroque pearl in the shape of a copper is absolutely Hermes, you know, or uh -huh. Hermes Trismegistus. That is the interesting. Okay. His sign, yes. and that's something that does go back to Horopolo, yeah. and that was sort of one of the original authentic Egyptian signs. That's that right. Yes. One. Yeah, yeah. But I think it would really be a case of individual cases. And yeah. it would depend on the artisan and the patron and what their knowledge was of alchemy. Yeah, no, the, and, yeah and, and the great thing, for example, of that jewel, it is in Medici. Um, oh, it's well, part of the Medici well, context. Well, yeah. what's, what's and as you know, Francesco the Medici oh, had, well, he, he was, yes, well, he had an alchemical cabinet. Yes, you know? so, so the, this text is a little bit earlier. No, but, that, that, well, that one is definitely, yeah. definitely alchemical. Yes. All the way. Thanks. That was a really very interesting presentation. Thank I have you. A, a two quick questions. If yeah. I the, the first is that there's a letter, um, there's a Rasmus, I can't remember exactly who, John Michel, in which um, he's talking about friendship and he says the vulgar sort exchange things like rings and knives. Mm -hmm. Heard of exchange books. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it, that's probably just a Rasmus thing, it's not. Yeah. So, but, but to what extent is this new representative of an attitude towards. Uh, these yeah. objects in the early 16th century. The second question is about consumer confidence. Yeah. Um, you showed, you I, I, showed a couple of images of, of, of sellers of these kinds of yes. What happens when um, they don't perform as expected? Yes, <laughs> yes. no, no, that, that, like that, that question, yes, it's, it's fantastic. It does not have suddenly um, power over all the womankind. Yes, <laughs> yes, no, you're absolutely right. Especially given, uh, I'm, I'm thinking too, it's the, the, growth, the growth of forged gems towards, you know, in the second half of the 16th yes. century, which we know, we know is a problem. Yeah, so let me, uh, um, let me answer first your first question. I think it's interesting because I think it depends on the cultural context. In the Italian context, both in the 15th and 16th century, it's actually very clear the rings are being exchanged in, among the elite classes as well. Um, in the context of the Medici, for example, they are great collectors of gems, and most of these gems are set in cameos and set in um, uh, uh, sometimes as pendants. A Simonetta Vespucci, a representation of by Botticelli of what is recorded to be uh, Simonetta Vespucci actually wears an example of it, right? Uh, it wears, I believe, a cameo showing uh, the flame of Marcius. And so that exchange, you know, that's, you know, as you said, I think it's a bit of a snarky uh, expression on the part of Erasmus. Um, on the other hand, it is problematic uh, because the object can be linked of, to magic, and that's something that is certainly problematic for the Catholic Church. And Ficino, after writing his De Vita, as you know, he had to recant six months later, and he discusses this question of uh, gems and jewels and images being carved on gems and jewels under specific also uh, um, uh, astrological moments. Interestingly, uh, throughout the 15th century as well, the 16th century, not necessarily uh, uh, and rings, we have gems being used obviously for medical purposes. Leo X, Clement VII are all treated with massive amount of ground precious gems. 
diamonds, sapphires, rubies, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars of worth today, or pounds worth today. And you might as well ask, well, they didn't quite get that, or in fact they died, you know, uh, although it takes still some time to get to that point. The practice still continues. Now, there is quite a bit of evidence, though, that if, if we look at the literature of, um, of uh, the, uh, the reception being rather skeptical. So, if on the one hand we have manuals that tout these properties, on the other, you also have uh, sort of anecdotes that uh, counteract this intellectual tradition. So to a certain extent, one has to wonder, you know, uh, are they an intellectual exercise? And to what point are they an intellectual exercise, right? Do you see what I mean, right? I mean, after all, he's dedicated, this is a physician in this particular case, Camilo Leonardo, is a physician who's dedicating the manual to the patron Cesare Borgia. He's just conquered Pesaro. He's eliminated the Sforza for whom he had worked. And so he enters this tradition of dedicating a literary work of, of, uh, of art, if you will, to his patron, who happens to also collect tons of gems, right? So it's, it's a little bit difficult, I think. You know, I mean, obviously I've done a certain kind of interpretation, but I full well recognize that there are a number of uh, pitfalls or a number of contradiction when it comes to actually looking at the material, right? I think there is a, a, a joke from a Spanish context, uh, and it, it's, it's a joke being told to the king. Uh, the, the, the king is being informed of all these uh, precious uh, uh, um, uh, gems and their occult virtues. And so the joke goes, who, you know, when a, um, a man wearing a, a, an emerald ring falls from a tower, which one breaks first, right? <laughs> and it's the men, right? So clearly, but, you know, the jewel does not. So it's occult virtue, it's not uh, uh, broken. On, when analyzing further, what's interesting is that the uh, if the ring does not work or the gem does not work, the, the problem is imputed to a uh, usage problem. It's the agent who has not used it properly. Uh, it was not carved in the proper manner. It was not, it, the material was not treated in the proper manner. The proper <coughs> astrological aspects were not observed, which is the typical excuse that you find since ancient Egyptian times onwards when magical things don't work. Time is flying. One short question, one more, and one short answer, please. Yes. A lot of the, a lot of gems and are still very ancient, and yes. we're still making new ones. Is there any difference in perception? Is an old gem better than a new one? You know, I, I haven't found uh, that. I mean, obviously, usually the antique gem is better from just the um, a sort of the genealogical point of view. But uh, the problem is that today it's very difficult for us to distinguish between the one done in the 15th, 16th century uh, that might be an imitation of antiquity, right? Uh, so it's very difficult to date them. I mean, it's very difficult to date the Hellenistic gems. Most of these ancient gems are Hellenistic to start with. So you kind of get this dating on from the you know third century BC onwards. You know, sort of difficult to place them. Right? Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Great Work Radio program. The Great Work Radio and blog are features of Jesse Waugh's website and can be accessed at jessiewaugh.com.
That's J-E-S-S-E-W-A-U-G-H dot com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program.